and our aim is to make it through the entire chapter. And there is nothing cheery in the chapter. And there is very little that is hopeful. The reason I picked for our first hymn, All My Sins Have Been Forgiven, is the... I mean, it's silly to pick a song for only two lines, but that's what I did. And it does line up with a lot of other things too, but um, the third line, How countless sins depressed me, gave me sorrow, shame, and tears. How his wrath and anger crushed me, filled my heart with doubts and fears. That is a wonderful summary of Exodus 32. What happens through the chapter and where the chapter ends. That's, that's the ending point. As Christians and as sinners, we should understand something of the self-loathing and the near feelings of despair that come with moral failure. Israel deals with that in Exodus 32. Last week we looked only at verses 1 to 6. That's the context and the nature in which sin occurs. And that is worth spending only six verses in one evening looking at that because everything else that unfolds in the chapter is a result of that. And so as we look at verses 1 to 35 this evening, um, all of it unfolds out of scene one, the people and their rebellion, the context and nature in which sin occurs. Scene 2 is in verses 7 to 14. It is a divine assessment and reaction to what the people have done, and it puts sin in its proper, heinous view. The Lord tells Moses what the people have done and interprets it. Scene 3 is the futility and folly of self-justification and judgment against sinners. Verses 15 Roughly to 35, but actually that's not entirely true because there is a fourth scene. The passage ends with the hope that a remnant will survive, but also with the Lord delivering a disorienting blow to the people of Israel. And while some may survive that blow, it is left far from clear as to whether or not the heart of the Lord is going to be with the people as they move on from Sinai or whether he will simply coldly fulfill his obligations to them and be done with at least most of them. That's where the chapter ends. So what we're going to do this evening is, because it is such a large text, what we're going to do is read the whole chapter, front to back, and we're just going to pick up some themes as we kind of walk back through it again after that. But I want to read the whole thing. Uh, so that we can kind of have a good feel of the terrain that we're working in this evening. So Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. Scene 1, the people and the rebellion. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. 
So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel. That is, the people said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, this is scene two now, Moses up on the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. They were written. I'll just throw in one comment, this spot here, possibly written front and back. No more room to add anything. It is the complete, perfect word of God. Verse 16, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he, as Moses, said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory, nor the sound of the cry of defeat, but it is the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water And made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, 
for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Last week, we left off at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Worth going back there. This is Paul's interpretation. I shouldn't say interpretation. This is Paul's pastoral application of Exodus 32. So if we want to know, when we read Exodus 32, what should we take from it? Primarily, Paul gives it to us, I think, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 and 7. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of, they, of some of them were, as it is written. And then he quotes Exodus 32, verse 6. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There are two things that I think are clear in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 7. First, the people did what they did because they desired evil. Whether or not they recognized that about themselves, that is why they did what they did. And the second thing is that the people engaged in sin, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, I'm not sure that that in itself is what was sinful per se because the Lord commands feasts to him. And remember, Aaron said this is a feast to Yahweh after all. But they engaged in sin with no idea of what was about to hit them. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play as if there was nothing wrong with what they were doing. So they were, in some sense, we might say, ignorant either of the evil they were committing or that the Lord would actually 
come back and visit that evil upon them. Now back to Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw, what they saw was their circumstances without the eyes of faith, they ganged up against Aaron and they foisted upon him the responsibility to make themselves gods who would go before them. Now Aaron was quick to oblige them. He made a golden calf, which is the same form of many of the gods and the nations around them. But this was designed to be a replacement for the word of God. And this is the reason I think it's important to keep verses 1 to 6 tonight, even though we went over it all last week, to repeat that. If we look back at verse 4, and it's super easy to skip over it in English, but the English presents it well. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. A graving tool is not a tool where you melt gold and fashion it over a wooden object. It's not the sort of tool that you use to carve out a three-dimensional object. It's a, it's a stylus. It's a pen. The point isn't that he used a pen to make the golden calf. The point is, this is designed to replace the written word of God that Moses already gave to them and a contrast to the two tablets that he has in his hand. That's what this is about. It is replacement of the word of God with this thing that they want to go before them. And they think they're still worshiping the God with the same name. Tomorrow, a feast to Yahweh. Do you think they realized what they did? That little word, graving tool, is a crucially important and rather unexpected word. When Aaron saw the way the people responded to this replacement for God's word, verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar and made a proclamation. I don't think the people realized they broke faith with the God whose name they thought they were worshiping. Let us know who we worship. And there's only one way to know. To know who we worship. He's given us his words. We pay attention to the words. There is no replacement for this. There is no updated version of Scripture. There's this. And insofar as we forsake this or try to replace the Bible, we no longer worship the God we think we're worshiping. That's how subtle and sly the temptation really is. Did God really say what he said? And we, of course, have to come back and say, Yes, but it's important to realize that true faith is not based on some vague religious hopes. It's not based on some idea that we conjure up. We all have some false idea of who God is and what he's done to a degree. But this is different. This is a rejection, an intentional replacement of the words that God has given. No who you worship. 
How does God respond? Scene 2, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. He tells Moses to go down the mountain and deal with the people. Now, in verse 7, God is not denying his own work in the Exodus, right? He's, he's not even agreeing with a view of the Israelites in verse 1. This man Moses, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, the Lord doesn't associate himself with that work, but in verse 7, he's doing something different than what the people were doing in verse 1. In verse 1, the people were saying, Moses is primarily responsible for having brought us out. Maybe there was a God working behind him, probably certainly was, but... Um, Moses is gone, therefore so is access to that God. Let's come up with something new. Verse 7, what the Lord is doing is two things. First, he's disassociating himself from this people. He does not say, go down, for my people have corrupted themselves, not his people anymore. It is a distancing of God from the people. The second thing it does is it reminds Moses that his responsibility for this people has not ended. And that is significant. God, Moses is responsible still to deliver God's word to them and to represent God to them. And as long as God is alive, Moses' commission stands. Regardless of what the people do, Moses remains the man between God and humanity. Now Moses has been away. He does not know what the people are doing. His interaction with Joshua on the way down uh, gives good evidence of that. Because remember, Joshua is only halfway up Sinai. Moses goes up the rest of the way. When Moses comes back down, he talks to Joshua. Joshua says, there's a sound of war. He doesn't know what's going on. And Moses uh, fills him in a little bit. But The reason he's able to fill him in is because God has given Moses the facts of what has happened, and that comes in chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. God explains what it means in verse 7 that they have corrupted themselves. He means, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. That is the infraction. They have turned aside out of the way that I commanded. Everything else that comes after that, in verse 8 and in verse 9, or in verse 8, that is an explanation of what it means that they have turned aside from the way that God commanded them. But that's the sin. That is the crux of what is going on. It's the same thing that happened in Eden. It's the same temptation that Christ met when he was challenged to turn the stones to bread. Now, Jesus, of course, responded spot on, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In all three cases, though, Eden, Sinai, and for Christ, the temptation to abandon God's word came when God seemed silent and distant. Now, ironically, in the case of the Israelites, God was preparing blessing for the people during that silence. He wasn't silent 
They just didn't hear him. He was telling Moses how to build a tabernacle where God would meet with the people. The silence wouldn't have gone on for long, but this was genuinely a time of testing. That silence was purposeful, but it was also preparing blessing. Charles Spurgeon struggled significantly with, you might even say, violent bouts of depression. But as he saw the pattern continue on throughout his life, he eventually came to see those bouts of depression when God seems distant and silent. He called them harbingers of blessing because he noticed on the heels of that, God often brings tremendous blessing. It was with Christ. Angels came and ministered to him after his temptations. What an encouragement that would be after 40 days of Silence and fasting. Those are times of testing when God tries us to see will we turn aside from the way that He has commanded? God lays out the facts in verse 8. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and have sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, verse 9 is the interpretation of those facts. Notice how in the language, it is a restart to the conversation. The Lord's already speaking to Moses. So in verse 9, why repeat, and the Lord said to Moses? What's happening is the narrator is tipping us off. There is something new happening here. The newness is it is now the interpretation of the facts that Moses had just received from the Lord. And what does the Lord see? I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. They have seen, the Lord has seen, something in contrast to what the people have seen. What the people saw were circumstances. Moses isn't coming down. And that's, that's the extent of what they saw. The Lord sees the facts, the people have turned aside, but let me tell you what that means about this people. The people couldn't say what the Lord's silence meant, but the Lord can tell you what the people's turning meant, and he does. He says, they are a stiff-necked people. They are people who are bent on rebellion, who desire evil. That's the sort of people they are. Eve didn't see right. The people of Israel didn't see right. But God sees them in light of his commands. That's the same way we are supposed to see ourselves. And that's the same way we are supposed to see the world. Not in light of what our pens can create, but in the light of what God's finger has put down. Psalm 119 is remarkable on the score. And I... I am a believer that Psalm 119, most of the verses here are not meant to be read off the back of one another, but I do find a strange theme running from verse 103 to verse 106. We are to evaluate ourselves and the world in the same light God does, which is the backdrop of his commandments. Verse, Psalm 119, starting in verse 103. And Psalm 103 begins with 
what those commandments mean to us. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Understanding about what? Well, at the very least, understanding about me and the world, my place in it, and God, and what is right and wrong in the world. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. By your word, I can see the terrain in which I walk. I can see circumstances for what they really are. Insofar as your light has made it plain, this clearly is moral language, but it's more than that. It's the ability to see the way God sees. It's the ability to understand the world the way God understands the world. That's what we are after. And then verse 106, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. The rules seem so righteous when we look at them from God's perspective. The people don't look at it from God's perspective. They've replaced it with something else already. If we do not compare ourselves to the same standard God uses, which is his law, his word, we will end up comparing ourselves to the Israelites and say, I wouldn't have done that. Who in their right mind would do that? Right? But remember the sin. They turned aside from the commandment. And turning aside from the commandment is idolatry. If we use scripture as our standards, we will test ourselves differently. And I think the way Paul does in Romans 7. Romans 7, verses 7 to 9. Remember what words the Israelites did hear from the Lord. It was the ten words, the ten commandments. They heard that with their own ears, and afterwards they said, please don't let the Lord speak to us anymore. Moses, you talk to him, and then you communicate to us what he's saying. Paul, in Romans 7, goes to the last of those commandments. And he tests himself. He tests his own metal against not other people, but against that word. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, clearly, any time we compare ourselves to someone else, we do so selectively. And we select who we're comparing ourselves to, right? We also can easily select what virtues are more important in our mind. And isn't it funny how they always line up with the virtues we don't struggle as much with? But when we compare ourselves to the Word of God, the whole Word of God, or Paul even just picks out one that's particularly acute in all our cases, covetousness. Which, according to 
Colossians 3.5, is idolatry. All of a sudden we don't pass so wonderfully. We would... The subtlety of sin is this. How many of us ever say to ourselves, I would be satisfied if... If that thing happened. Or if, if I had that so that I could do this. Or if I had this experience... That'd be satisfying. And no doubt, there are lots of pleasures in the world. But that's where covetousness walks in, isn't it? Well, they get that. They, Man, I wish I could do that. Heard a... I don't know how many of you listen to Albert Moeller. I try to at least once in a while. A week and a half ago or so, he um, was responding to an article that had come out in major news media about the rate of depression in young women um, skyrocketed in the last two or three years, wouldn't you know it? It's always been high among young girls, but particularly has, has shot through the roof in the last few years, depression among young women. And no doubt uh, we can blame something on COVID because who can't blame something on COVID But the fact is, social media has just simply upped the ante in the meantime. And young girls are notorious for comparing themselves against what they see on social media. Now, that's not innovative to them. Farmers have been doing that with their neighbor's equipment for decades. Right? Covetousness is idolatry. Are we really that much better off than the Israelites? And it takes even more subtle forms than that. Social respect, better living circumstances, circumstantial control, you name it. A desire for what we don't have because we distrust the God on top of the mountain. What is the result of those evil desires? Exodus 32, verse 10. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Do not let the fact that you know the rest of the story blot out the weight of that sentence. Don't read Exodus 34 yet. Don't read Exodus 33 yet. Sit in Exodus 32. Let me alone that I might blot them out. The whole lot of them. Wipe them off the face of the earth. Annihilate them. Kill every last one of them. And start over with you. That's anger. That is hot displeasure. That is fierce violence. The covenant is broken by spiritual idolatry. The people are no longer gods, and he's going to take another, Moses. That's what's happened. But Moses, rather than giving God what he, the rest that he asks for, Moses instead takes up his responsibility and he exhausts God's will to abandon them 
to destruction. And he does it through prayer. The language of verse 10 is actually remarkable. And the Lord said, Now give me rest. Cause me to rest that my nose may burn hot. Likely, I think that language there, in the word there really is rest, right? So Noah's name, Noah, his father said when, he's, when he was born, this one will give us rest from our toil. It, it will get, he will give us respite. The Lord uses the verb for Noah's name here. Give me a break. Don't badger me. Let me go that I might destroy them. Moses catches that. So you're saying if I don't actually give you rest? I think this might have been one of the little bits of fuel for Jesus' parable in Luke 18 about the, the unrighteous ruler who finally gives in to the persistent widow just so she'd stop nagging him. And what the Lord is basically saying here is, stop nagging me, let me go that I might destroy them. Moses presses on, though. First, he appeals to God's connection with Israel. Verse 11, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? The Lord has publicly bonded himself to them through the Exodus. Why? Destroy them. Then he appeals, verse 12, to what the other nations around them would say, based on the recognized fact of the Lord's being bonded to them. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he brought them up to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Then Moses gives two commandments. First, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. We could translate it, turn and have feelings of compassion. Which is to say, the people are do the evil that you have threatened, but that evil would destroy them, have pity. The Lord takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Don't destroy them. You, you know what that would do to them, right? Now, all of you who are parents can totally relate to this. Go to your room. I'll be there in a minute with a stick. But you know inside, I don't want to do this, right? There's, there's this internal feeling in you that wants to have pity simply for the sake of not inflicting pain. That's what Moses is pleading Let those feelings of compassion turn you in a way that you do not destroy the people indiscriminately. And then, verse 13, second commandment, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants. So Moses shows God's promises back to him. Now, technically, God could have restarted with Moses and been entirely faithful to his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And the reason is Moses is a descendant of theirs. Through Moses, he can repopulate and still have been faithful to his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why then does Moses think this is a good argument to use? Remember your servants, what you swore to them. I think there are a couple good reasons. First, I will multiply your offsprings. Lord, the work that you have begun do not abandon now. And the second thing is the Lord is more concerned for life than he is for technicalities. The Lord pursues life. Verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on the people. It is good for each of us that the Lord is more concerned for life than technicalities. As I said earlier, there's, there's something that all of us misunderstand about the Lord to some degree. There are technicalities and nuances that we misunderstand and that we sometimes even willfully suppress. But let me tell you, it is better to be a wart on the body of Christ than to not be a part of his body at all. Let me be a wart on Christ's body rather than the apple in the world's eye. The world does not care about compassion. And if you have paid attention to the way the world has turned on its own people who have not kept up with the culture's views and the way it tries to vigorously consume them, there's no compassion in the world. The Lord isn't like that. The Lord is a fan of life. So, with God's promise to not indiscriminately wipe out the nation of people, Moses descends back down, picking up Joshua halfway down. Verses 15 and 16 make a big deal about the tablets. It does not do so for the sake of our curiosity, but because they are the Lord's work and they are the symbol of the covenant. Two tablets written front and back. Almost certainly each tablet is a complete writing of the covenant. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, when a treaty was made between a king and his subject, there would be two copies of the covenant made. One would be put in a temple the deity's temple, so that he can enforce the covenant between the two parties. So if, if one of them forsakes their obligations, there will be divine retribution. The other copy goes in the king's palace, so that the king can always, not the great king's palace, the subject's palace. So between a great king and a lesser king, the lesser king takes the second copy so that he can see what his obligations are and how to remain faithful to the king. Now, incidentally, the Hebrew word for palace and temple is the same word. And in this case, both of those copies were being deposited in the tabernacle. God was the king. But God was also, or the, the tabernacle was also where the people went to meet God. And so both of these were likely headed for the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle that was supposed to be created, uh, made once Moses got down there. So the, uh, Moses takes Joshua, and he takes the two tablets, heads back down the mountain, and what happens? Verse seven, 
verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw, that key word again, as soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing. Because Moses had God's perspective, he saw it correctly. He saw it for what it was. He saw it as an atrocity, an evil, an abomination. He becomes angry and he throws down the tablets and breaks them. That is not for dramatic effect. It is not because he lost his temper and was having a fit of rage and forgot that he was holding the most valuable things the earth had ever seen. He did it as a symbol and as the Lord's representative that this covenant is now nullified. Remember, it was at the foot of the mountain where the covenant was created. That's where the people said, we will do it. And the covenant was formed at the foot of the mountain. The modern equivalent of this would be showing back up So, um, a few weeks back, we had a wedding here. It's a great wedding. Imagine if they came back after their honeymoon, interrupted their honeymoon, came back, burned the marriage contract over the unity candle. That's what this is. The tramp committed adultery on our honeymoon. The marriage is off. This is done. That's what this is. That's what those broken tablets is meant to signify. So Moses smashes the tablets. And just because the wife's life, Israel's life is spared, that does not mean that she continues on without the shame and the reproachful consequences of her infidelity. Moses pulverizes the idol. He burns it, grinds it to powder, throws it in a river, has the people drink it, and asks Aaron, the leader of the people, what did the people do to you? Question number one, that caused you to lead them in this great sin. Question two. Now Aaron, for the most part, gives a, an, a cowardly, fairly accurate answer as to what the people did after he blames them for the whole thing. And by the way, in verse 22, when Aaron says to Moses, let not my Lord's anger burn hot, he's not talking about the people. He's not defending the people. Because we can see in the next passage, you know the people that they're bent on evil. He's just looking to make it out with his own skin. Right? But he gives a fairly accurate representation of what the people said in verse 23. And then in verse 24, we think, how in the world can you come up with something so childish? Uh, I said, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Now to us, that seems outrageously childish. And the text means it to come across that way. But... This is also the answer any respectable priest in the ancient Near East would give about how an idol was formed. No, no. A divine power made this thing, therefore we know it's a valid idol. It's it's an acceptable idol. So Aaron here is not only justifying himself by mitigating his role in it, which he significantly downplays, he's also trying to say, but it was valid, it worked, right? Something else made this calf. And what the text is saying is, To the whole world, 
not just about Aaron, but using Aaron as the scapegoat for it, saying the whole world, all those idols you trust in, this is nonsense. So anyone reading this, even in Israel's day, Aaron made it with an engraving tool. He he fashioned it with something, right? To which everyone would say, well, maybe. But the theological answer is it came out on, no, it's not. So the text is painting a very bad picture of Aaron's response, not just to put Aaron in a bad light, but to put all of those who think like him in a bad light. And let me tell you, in their day and age, there were thousands and thousands and millions who thought just like that. That was a painful sting, the way the text is written in Aaron's day. And we can chuckle at it because... Um, that is so foreign to us. But anyway, having dealt with Aaron and his role in it, Moses turns, verse 25, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, he sees them again with eyes enlightened by the Lord. Then the text has this parenthetical remark for Aaron and let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. It's the only time this word is used in the whole Hebrew Old Testament. No idea exactly what it means. Most likely it means something along the lines of they became a joke. Um, Right? Here's Israel. These are the people that defeated Egypt, but they can't even keep control of themselves. How hard can they really be to defeat in battle? Just nonsense people down there running around every which way. No order, no rhyme and reason. Um, That's likely the sense of the passage. And Moses stood in the gate of the camp around him and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Moses takes his place as judge, and the gate of the camp turns towards the people, sees them, with the scales of deception removed from their eyes about Aaron the calf and what the people were, what the idol actually is. And when Moses stands back and says, who is actually for Yahweh? Come to me. Everyone gathers to him. One thirteenth of the people gathered to him. The tribe of Levi. Where was everyone else? The scales of self-deception are maybe not so easily removed. The truth does not become clear to the whole nation. The Levites go through and likely only kill a few, 3,000, of those who had actually engaged in the sin. Probably those who were running wild, that the text had just referred to. Probably those who were most objectively involved in the idolatry but certainly not everyone, certainly not even most. 3,000 fell. Three things to end with in consideration. First, the cost of desiring evil is so high. The text is designed to remove from us the attraction of evil. Sit in Exodus 32. Don't run ahead to Exodus 34. Sit in Exodus 32. What Israel did 
merited death for everyone. Everyone but Moses and Joshua who weren't there. Part of the evil was in the calf. Worship the calf, sacrificing to the calf. Giving credit to the calf that actually belonged only to the Lord. That's, that's, that's evil. But it is also evil to watch it happen and not say anything. If you know better and you don't say anything, non-participants are guilty by association and silence because of their spirit of non-confrontation against sin merited death. We have prophets who are warned about that too, right? If people die because you don't warn them, I require their blood at your hand. Do we confront sin? When Jesus says the Spirit's role is to convict the world of its sin, it does that, the Spirit does that not mystically. He does it through the Word and through the Word proclaimed by the church. All of them deserve to die. Why don't we convict the world of its sin? Because we desire evil too. Not necessarily that we're conformed about hypocrisy. But it is evil to desire the sort of lifestyle that gets away with not confronting sin. And the Lord will not let us have it. And the separation caused by these sins is so great that the Lord refuses to call any of these people his people. He will not go with them. He says, I will send my angel before you. I'm not going. That's where the passage ends after the Lord then ends up visiting and gives an even stronger blow to them than what the Levites could give by their sword. Now, if we desire intimacy with God, we have to know that he will not tolerate our sin. Number two, repentance often appears to be a scandal. The Levites came to Moses. Moses was a Levite. Aaron was a Levite. This is what established the family dynasty of the religious order. No doubt there were Israelites who didn't come to Moses simply because the Levites were all the ones that were there. And there's got to be a tinge of spite in that, right? Well, of course the Levites are going. Why in the world would I go, right? I worked with a guy for years. He said, the only reason you're a Christian is because your parents were Christians. Now, ironically, he said that his parents were devout Catholics and he despised Catholics. He said, you're not. <laughs> Why aren't you a Catholic then? Well, exactly. But, but it caused a scandal for him. Now, the only reason you're a Christian is because your parents were Christians. That's the scandal of grace. There is scandal in that. But notice that the grace given to the Levites was also the same tribe that had the pillar of guilt. Aaron is a Levite. He has a central role in the people's sin. Now, not only does this show the power of grace over sin, it's all within the same tribe, 
It also shows that repentance is no easy road. And Aaron may appear to get off scot-free. He goes on to be the high priest of Israel, and it's his children who take over the high priesthood after him. But imagine what goes on in Aaron's mind for the rest of his life, knowing that 3,000 people and countless more died as a result of the sin that he led them into. Oh, my countless sins depressed me, gave me sorrow, shame, and tears. How his wrath and anger crushed me, filled my hearts with doubts and fears. Aaron may have not died for what he did. By all appearances, he was certainly forgiven for what he did. That doesn't change the psychological torment that he endured as a consequence of the sin that he led the people into. Repentance was a scandal, but it was still repentance and it was still noticed. Verse 29. Moses said, Today you, Levites, have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And I have to go back to it. In verse 27, Thus says the Lord, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill, the ESV has his brother first, which, great translation, terrible meaning. What, what he's saying is kill your fellow Israelite, then your neighbor, and then your relative. The concentric circle gets smaller. Not only do you have to kill the ones you don't really know all that well, you have to kill your neighbors, the ones you live next to. And if that's not enough, you go into your own house and if there's someone who's worshiping this idol and won't repent from it, you run them through with your sword. That's the cost of repentance. And that is a high cost. So the consequence lingers, but so does the entire promise. The covenant is broken. God is near only for judgment and while the nation is spared by grace, the more guilty participants aren't. Verse 35, the Lord sent a plague on the people because of the calf. Aaron doesn't entirely get off scot-free. But there is still a shred of hope. And that shred of hope is very subtle. First, as that the Lord prodded Moses to plead for the people. That's the only hope there is in the midst of the chapter. And by the time we get to the end of the chapter, there's only one hope that Moses, I think, really has to cling to, and it comes back again in his prayer. Verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all the land that I've promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. If we go back to Genesis 15. I find this remarkable passage. What gives Moses the hope? What is the shred of hope that Moses clings to? 
when he says, I will go back up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for you. It's this, Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. It's only a few words. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. Six words. That's the shred of hope that Moses has to cling to. God might not entirely forsake this people. But when the passage ends, they're not his people. The only way Moses hopes to make atonement for the people isn't by Aaron's sacrifice, it's by no sacrifice he makes. It's by throwing himself on the promise that God had already given and pursuing intimacy with the Lord. That's what he does in in chapter 33 and chapter 34. Pursuing intimacy with the Lord. It's all, all, all he's got. And six words to cling to. We ought to have that sort of faith too. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our sin Our sins are many, but your mercy is more. We are grateful that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Father, forgive us for how how quickly we are to covet, how quickly we are to turn aside from the way that you command. Restore to us hearts that are full of repentance. Turn to your people. Be merciful to us. Be gracious to us. And as we go from here, do not allow us to desire evil. Amen.